you're listening to an audio recording of the Epsilon Theory Note, A Song of Ice and Fire, originally published on May 27th, 2019, written by Ben Hunt and read for you by Kevin Veldman. For more, please visit EpsilonTheory.com. Please note that this is general information only and is not investment advice. The opinions expressed represent the personal views of the author. It is not a research recommendation, and it is not customized for the situation of any investor. Epsilon Theory urges investors to seek the advice of a financial advisor before making any investment decision. Every winter, we lose something here on Little River Farm. It's like a tithe that nature takes, year after year after year. This winter was particularly tough. Polar vortex and all that, I suppose. None of the bees made it. I've lost hives before. It happens. But it's never easy. It's never anything but sad. They work so hard at staying alive through a New England winter, and they're all boxed away for months, and you can't open the hive to check on them because that would weaken them for sure, and it wouldn't do any good anyway. And so you wait, and you worry, and you do all you can to set up windbreaks, and you don't know if they're hanging in there, and it finally gets warm enough to crack open the hive and get them some help, and death. Nothing but death. Always go to the funeral. We respect our animals in life and in death, especially in death. So I remove the bee husks and the old comb, and I make a small fire, and I give them to the flames. Because it doesn't seem right to put bees into the ground. They are of air in life, and they should be of air in death. And we begin again, always. But this isn't a note about beginning anew after a polar vortex of a winter. Well, it kind of is, so hold that thought in the back of your head. But the narrative structure for this note isn't about winter and ice and the tithe of death. It's about winter and ice and the miracle of life. There were two animals I was certain the winter would take from us, and those are the goldfish that live in the horse's outdoor water trough. Yes, we put goldfish in the water trough last spring. The horses are careful not to eat them or drink them in, and the goldfish are great at keeping the trough clean. Not industrial clean, of course, but fingernail clean the way a real living farm should be. I figured this was a break of ice in the dead of winter. I figured there was no way on God's green earth that two little fish could sit outside in what amounts to a big pail of water through a Connecticut winter. I mean, good lord, we had days and days of sub-zero temperatures this January. And yet, there they were, glints of orange-red swimming around in the trough here in late March. A miracle? Yes, But not the kind of miracle you're thinking of. Not the miracle of some sort of cryogenic suspension where the goldfish are like Captain America, thawed out from a giant block of ice after 40 years, ready to pick right back up fighting supervillains or eating algae or whatever it is one does after resurrection. No, the miracle here is the non-linear nature of water. See, we all know that when gases or liquids get colder, they get denser. They get heavier. The molecules in the gas and the liquid are less energetic as they cool off. They bounce around less. They sink. This is why pool water and lake water and ocean water gets colder the deeper you go. It's a perfectly linear relationship. The colder the water, the heavier the water. The colder the water, the more it sinks. But when water gets to 4 degrees centigrade, 
this nicely linear relationship between temperature and density stops happening. In fact, it reverses. It's not only nonlinear, it's non-monotonic, a $10 word that means reversal. As water gets colder than 4 degrees centigrade, it no longer gets heavier. It no longer gets denser. It no longer sinks. Instead, this miraculous substance called water gets lighter as it nears its freezing point. It's still a liquid. There are no solid ice crystals forming here that have a different density from liquid water. It's still exactly the same substance in form and chemistry and everything else at 3 degrees centigrade as it was at 4 degrees centigrade. But somehow, it is now lighter than it was before. And so it rises. And it rises still more at 2 degrees centigrade. And still more at 1 degree centigrade. So ice does not form at the bottom of a Connecticut pond or lake water or trough, but instead forms at the top of a Connecticut pond or lake or water trough, where it forms an insulating barrier against the cold air, reducing the liquid water temperature still further. That's how the goldfish survived. There was liquid water at the bottom of that deep horse trough, even as the polar vortex raged above. Without this nonlinear, non-monotonic property of water, life as we know it would hardly exist. Every ice age would be every bit as much an extinction event as a giant meteor of death. Every lake or pond above or below a certain latitude would be as lifeless as the moon. It's a miracle of life that liquid water, the foundation of life on our planet, gets lighter instead of heavier right before it changes into solid ice. There's no reason why this nonlinear property of water should exist. And yet, it does. If you were predicting the behavior of water from a theory of thermodynamics, there is no way you would predict that 3 degrees cold water would be lighter than 4 degrees cold water. And yet, it is. Facts don't care about your feelings? Yeah, yeah, cute. Here's the far more serious truth. Facts don't care about your theories. The only way to learn the nonlinear nature of water is through empirical observation, through actually living with water and ice rather than simply theorizing about water and ice. Because once you see that very cold water becomes lighter rather than heavier, then you know that there must be something wrong with your theory of thermodynamics. Because this behavior is impossible within a theory of thermodynamics. There must be something else acting on the behavior of water than thermodynamics. Something bigger and more fundamental than thermodynamics. In this case, the case of H2O, it's the asymmetric positioning of the two hydrogen atoms connected to the single oxygen atom. It's the atomic structure of the water molecule that creates the miracle of life. Same thing with economics. Because money, like water, is nonlinear. Because you think you can explain and predict human behaviors around money based on a macro theory of monetarism, the supply and price of money. And usually that's true. But sometimes it's not. Because there is a more fundamental theory of money, an atomic structure theory of money based on human risk-taking and human social narratives that subsumes and improves on your macro theory of monetarism. Does lowering the price of money from 8% to 7.5% create more risk-taking? 
Does it increase the velocity of money through the real economy as corporate and household risk takers are willing to borrow and spend and invest more at 7.5% than they were at 8%? Yes. How about lowering the price of money from 7.5% to 7%? Also yes. 7% to 6.5%? To 6 To 5.5%? To 4 Yes, 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 and yes. It's a nicely linear relationship. It's exactly as one would predict from a theory of monetarism and macroeconomics. So I understand why central bankers believe that lowering the price of money from 1% to 0.5% would act on risk-taking behavior in the same linear fashion, and from 0.5% to 0%, and in the case of Europe, from 0% to negative interest rates, and from slightly negative interest rates to really negative interest rates. They have a linear theory of monetarism and macroeconomics. Lower interest rates have a specific and direct relationship with risk-taking economic behavior and expectations. The lower the interest rate, the greater the spur to inflation, by which central bankers mean risk-taking economic behavior. Inflation not being spurred? Lower the price of money more. Inflation still not being spurred? Lower the price of money still more. Inflation still not being spurred? Lower the price of money more. But it's not working, people. Lower and lower interest rates are demonstrably not spurring risk-taking economic behavior in the real economy. Lower and lower interest rates are empirically not spurring inflation. When the price of money gets really low, like close to 0% low, risk-taking behavior changes. The rational risk-taker in a zero-interest-rate world does not invest in property, plant, and equipment. The rational risk-taker does not borrow more and spend more to invest in the future. No, the rational risk-taker believes the central bankers who say that interest rates will be ultra-low forever and ever, amen, that future growth rates are moribund and miserable, that our world persists in a long gray slog of deflation just as far as the eye can see. What do rational risk-takers do in a zero-interest-rate world? They buy back stock. They buy profitless revenue. They engage in financialization. They minimize risk and maximize return. They are greedy and they are fearful. They demonstrate the atomic behavior of rational, greedy-slash-fearful human beings since the dawn of freaking time. Quote from the Epsilon Theory note, This is Water. This is profit margin growth without labor productivity growth. This is the zombification and oligarchification of the U.S. economy. This is the smiley face perversion of Smith's invisible hand and Schumpeter's creative destruction. This is the profoundly repressive political equilibrium of an entrenched state and an entrenched oligarchy that masks itself in the common knowledge of yay capitalism and yay military and yay college. End quote. That's a thick layer of ice above us, growing thicker by the day. But we are still the goldfish on Little River Farm, still swimming in a small pocket of water, not yet encased in a solid block of ice. We aren't yet the bees. Not yet. What must we do to avoid the bees' fate? What must we do to end this winter that is imposed on us? We have to break the wheel. 
We have to break the tyranny of ideas that nudge us into service to the state and the oligarchy without replacing those ideas with a tyranny of our own. How do we do that? Well, I know it's all the rage to rip the Benioff and Weiss screenplay in the post-George R.R. Martin seasons. I'm pretty bummed myself, but this line by Tyrion in the finale shows the way. Quote, What unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? Stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. End quote. How do we break the wheel? Not by revolution. Not by dragon fire. It didn't work for Daenerys, and it won't work for us. We break the wheel with a better story with a better theory, because that's what a theory is, a story about how the world works. By the way, this is how science works. By the way, it's always science that breaks the wheel. The story of the masters is that the market is a macro clockwork machine governed by linear mechanistic laws. I have a better story. The market is a bonfire. Quote from the Epsilon Theory note, we're doing it wrong. Fire is not magic. Fire is not somehow separate from science or rigorous human examination. We know how to start fires. We know how to grow and diminish fires. We know how to put fires out. In a technical sense, Ray Dalio, you can classify fire as a machine. But you'd never think that you could possess an algorithm that predicts the shape and form of a bonfire. You'd never think that if you only stared at the fire long enough, and God knows humans have been staring at fires for tens of thousands of years, that somehow you'd divine some formula for predicting the shape of this or that lick of flame or the timing of this or that log collapsing in a burst of sparks. No human can algorithmically predict how a fire will burn. Neither can a computer. No matter how much computing power you throw at a bonfire, a general closed-end solution for a macro system like this simply does not exist. But a really powerful computer can calculate how a fire will burn. A really powerful computer can simulate how a fire will burn. Not by looking for historical patterns in fire. Not by running econometric regressions. Not by figuring out the secret formula that explains a macro phenomenon like a bonfire. That's the human way of seeing the world. And if you use your computer power to do more of that, then you're wasting your time and your money. No, a really powerful computer can perceive the world differently. It can see every tiny piece of wood and every tiny volume of oxygen and every tiny erg of energy. It knows the rules for how wood and oxygen and heat interact. Most importantly, and most differently from humans, this really powerful computer can see all of these tiny pieces and know all of these tiny interactions at the same time. It can take a snapshot of all of this at time t and calculate what all of this will look like at time t plus 1. 
and then do that calculation again to figure out what all of this looks like at time t plus 2. End quote. This is an atomic theory of markets. This is the intuition and the technology roadmap to provide a better theory. It's not that macroeconomics and monetarism is wrong. There's no such thing as right or wrong when it comes to theory. It's that macroeconomics and monetarism is not as useful a theory as one formed organically from the risk-taking economic behaviors of actual economic actors. Look, central bank cultists will never change their beliefs that they are the thin blue line between order and chaos, or that academic economics is the one true path for enlightenment and the maintenance of the thin blue line. Change isn't going to come from attacking the Fed or from snarky bloggers. I mean, I did just call them cultists. No, no, change will come from a Fed economist reading this note on her Gmail account, of course, and dropping the assumption, because it is an assumption, that for all prices of money, there is a monotonic relationship between the change in the price of money and change in the velocity of money employed for productive economic purposes. Change will come from this economist allowing for the possibility of a nonlinear and non-monotonic relationship between interest rates and inflationary behaviors at very low interest rates, loosening her stochastic assumptions accordingly, and then testing this possibility against the actual empirical evidence of the past 10 years. Change will come from this economist presenting her findings from within the proper academic forms as an extension and progression of what came before, so that the institutional imperative to self-servingly mansplain our place in the world, you're welcome, can be maintained. Daenerys and her city-destroying dragons couldn't break the wheel, but Moana and her Maui-tolerating wayfinding could. In a thousand small steps, this is how theory changes. This is how science advances. This is how progress is made. This is how the story that we tell ourselves about who we are evolves into something that subverts institutions from within, not something that attacks institutions from without. As below, so above. To be honest, it's a long shot that we'll be able to pull this off. After all, we're not in a Disney movie, or even an HBO show. One of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut, wrote a lot about theory and nonlinear systems and humanity's place in all that. You wouldn't know it from a cursory read because he could spin a yarn, but that's what most of his books are about. Cat's Cradle is the novel most obviously connected to my particular theme, as the plot is driven by the invention of a substance called Ice-9, an isotope of water that freezes at room temperature and replicates itself in any ordinary water it touches, thus spreading the ice all throughout the liquid water in all the world. You know, kind of like negative interest rates. Along the way to the end of the world, there's a nihilist religion called Bokananism to explore with this wonderful quote. The 14th book is entitled, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for a Mankind on Earth, Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? It doesn't take long to read the 14th book. It consists of one word and a period. This is it. Nothing. End quote. Vonnegut would probably say we don't stand a chance against the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy, 
armed to the teeth with narrative-controlling instruments that promote their wheel-preserving ideas, convincing us to sign away our autonomy of mind. Like how the narrative of yay capitalism subverts our liberty and responsibility to make. Like how the narrative of yay military subverts our liberty and responsibility to protect. Like how the narrative of yay college subverts our liberty and responsibility to teach. Yeah, he's probably right. But then again, Kurt, why did you write? I'm publishing this note on Memorial Day for a reason. You get it. I know you do. We are the human animal. We are nonlinear. We are a song of ice and fire. It's a song that has built cathedrals and fed billions and taken us to the moon. It's a song that can do all of that and more, far, far more, if only we remember the tune. The pack remembers. Yours in service to the pack, Ben. For more, please visit EpsilonTheory.com. Please note that this is general information only and is not investment advice. The opinions expressed represent the personal views of the author. It is not a research recommendation, and it is not customized for the situation of any investor. Epsilon Theory urges investors to seek the advice of a financial advisor before making any investment decisions.